Hello, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2024 and the programme that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, Chris Smith. This time, we're going to consult experts in their different scientific fields and ask them what do they think the next 12 months have in store. We're going to look ahead to what 2024 has in store, at least scientifically speaking, in a number of key areas. And we begin with some of the biggest health problems that policymakers are likely to confront in the year ahead and what we can do about them. I've been speaking to Linda Bold, who's the Bruce and John Usher Chair in Public Health at the University of Edinburgh. She's also Chief Social Policy Advisor for the Scottish Government. I began by asking her what she's made of what's been dubbed the vaping pandemic. I am surprised to some degree um, in terms of the rise of the use of these products amongst young people and people who don't smoke. And the reason or the, the biggest explanation for that from my perspective is actually the market, it's product innovation. So in countries where these products are legal, and there's many countries that have banned them around the world, the manufacturers came up with disposable vapes really over the last couple of years. They're very cheap, they're accessible, they're marketed to young people, and that's what's driving the uptake. Do we have any data yet, though, on the potential health harms of vaping? Because many of the advocates for vaping have based their arguments around the fact that compared with smoking, it is much better for you. But compared with never smoking, I don't suppose we actually have that data, or do we? No, well, we have different kinds of data. So we know the relative risks um, from well-conducted studies that have been done in terms of short-term exposures. We also have uh, basic science research where we do have real concerns. So cell line and rodent studies that, that certainly show there are respiratory effects, there may be there are cardiovascular effects, and there may be carcinogenic cancer risks associated with it. But that's you know, pre, what we call preclinical research. So we don't know whether it will translate into humans. And those kinds of early studies don't always translate to humans, but there's certainly markers there. We also know that for people, for example, who have asthma or other respiratory conditions that might make them more sensitive to vaping, we have had some really unfortunate cases. And then finally, we know that the market is not regulated and there are illicit vapes. And if things get into the vapes that are really health harming, as we saw with what we call the Avali outbreak in the USA with vitamin E acetate, then actually these devices could be really harmful. How are we going to get the genie back in the bottle? Youth vaping rates vary around the world. And if you can regulate, um, you can reduce use. And we've got really good evidence of this from other things like smoking. I mean, one of the biggest drivers is price. So if you make these devices, particularly disposables, much more expensive, young people are not going to be able to afford them. Young people are very price sensitive. Restricting marketing would, would certainly deter some youth use. So I really am confident that you're going to see more action on this. However, we don't want to put the genie completely back into the bottle because of the trials that I and others have done that show that for people who are heavily dependent on smoking, actually these devices can help them quit. So it's a very, very tricky balance to strike. Moving on to COVID, pandemics, the COVID inquiry and so on, what sorts of things have governments, both the UK government, but also the devolved administrations, you're in Scotland, for example, what sorts of things have been changed and are now in place 
to make sure that if we do have disease X starting tomorrow, we will be more agile? So the first one is uh, to do with the workforce and readiness. So I think there's startup teams or, or mechanisms to pull people into a response very quickly, well above what we'd normally do in health protection. So in government, in Scottish government, in UK government, as I say, UK Health Security Agency, just having the right people and also getting the right kind of scientific advice, because you could argue that was too narrow in the UK. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we're, we've retained or we're trying to retain, although I'm concerned about this, uh, some of the testing infrastructure. So that really needs to continue to be resourced. Things like PPE, I think, I don't know the, how that was done is still in the news headlines, isn't it, in the UK, but procurement routes and that kind of thing. Those are certainly things that are part of our preparedness. And then scientifically, in terms of vaccine development, therapeutics, um, I think there are models and pathways that we would be able to follow. So some good news there. That's a nice Christmas present. What about a less nice Christmas present, which is that obesity levels have continued to climb, not just in our countries, but across the world. What's the thinking in policy terms around this? Because obviously this is, some some argue, going to knock COVID into next week in terms of its morbidity and mortality impact, the, the fact that maybe half the world population is now obese or about to be. The problem with the pandemic, and it's not just because of the pandemic, but there are a lot of health issues which we basically ignored, and you can see the strain on, on the health service. And obesity is perhaps one of the best examples. I was looking at a chart in relation to the different health risks that we face for Scotland and where we are in comparison to some of the aspirations politicians um, set in Scotland. It was to reduce childhood obesity by half by 2030. I mean, we're so far off that target. It's actually difficult to describe how far off we are. We've had announcements about action, but governments have repeatedly delayed the kinds of action that we need to take on this. And the positive developments around weight loss drugs, for example, um, most people will have heard of some of those that have been uh, developed. They're not going to tackle this problem. We can't treat our way out of the obesity epidemic. Um, There needs to be population level measures. And what should those look like? The food environment needs to change, but it's really complex. If you go back to the Second World War, where we had to ask farmers, producers to produce much more from less space and and fewer resources and we're still we're still overproducing the wrong kinds of food so that that's a complex thing but the other things we need to do in terms of changing the food environment are trying to shift towards selling healthier products to people making those more affordable and accessible the uk government has delayed repeatedly restricting television advertising on junk foods putting legislation around price promotions you know those big packets of crisps three for the price of two Interestingly, Latin America, actually, because their obesity challenges are even greater than ours, some Latin American countries, they are actually have been more ambitious and are starting to take that kind of action. But it's going to take decades. It's almost that we've created an environment in which it's impossible not to get fat. Fast food is on every street corner. Supermarket aisles are crammed with impulse buys. One wonders if the only solution is you go back to a point where there just wasn't this abundance, but then you take away public choice. People who have less money in their pocket in the UK are far more likely to be overweight and obese. So what causes those differences is because the really unhealthy products are often the cheapest. People expect to consume those kinds of food. Their friends and family are. And there's some arguments, you know, about we've changed 
you know, these are they're kind of addictive, some of these foods. So we've changed the way we're wired to want to consume them. It's different from smoking or vaping. We are going to have to work with manufacturers, with retailers, with producers, so they can reformulate and change the food supply over the longer term. Linda Bold there. Thanks to Linda. Artificial intelligence has barely been off the front page in 2023. It seems to have impacted on every aspect of our lives. Many are worried about its impact. So what will the year ahead hold in this area? Well, Professor Michael Wardridge is an AI specialist from the Department of Computer Science at the University of Oxford. He also delivered this year's Royal Institution Christmas lectures on this very topic. If I look at my field, there are various sort of watershed years in technology, but very often you don't realise they're watershed years until some time later. There's the transistor being invented in the 1960s, and then you've got the microprocessor technology in the 1970s. Then fast forward to the World Wide Web in the late 90s and the empires that are created there are Google and Amazon. In the smartphone era, the mobile era, you've got Facebook and Twitter. They're basically the empires that are created on the back of that. And what's happened this year is that one of those speculative bets, the bet on large language model, turns out to be the one that is surprisingly successful. So what we're seeing now is OpenAI's ChatGPT is the tool that takes off. Now we're seeing everybody else scramble to catch up. How's that counteroffensive going to play out? Are Google slash Microsoft so big that rather than seeing, as you described about these watershed moments in the evolution of technology, new front runners emerge? Well, the new front runners here are old runners that have got a new song to sing. So is that going to be the status quo or are we going to see whole new ways of doing this burst onto the scene and gazump them? With respect to the the Googles and the Microsofts, there is a certain element of just not losing ground. I mean, they're desperate to maintain their their market position and not have a new, like it was in 1998 or so, you know, the Google that that suddenly takes over from Alta Vista and, and the other search companies whose names I can't remember anymore. Well, Yahoo, of course, uh, still (laughs) still a player. But yes, I was going to go down that line and say with the web, search was immediately the big driving factor. And quite quickly, one front runner, Google, emerged and has dominated at one point, accounting for into the 90s of percentage of of all the search that was being done on the web around the world. Are we going to see AI technologies go the same way, where there is this sort of competition, survival of the fittest, one of them emerges? Or are we just going to see mass competition? Everyone continues to use and deploy their own in-house forms of this. Difficult to know, but what's remarkable is that ChatGPT has just become the generic name for these things, right? I mean, it's like the hoover of the large language model world. And that, I think, is a huge advantage that OpenAI already have. They've got the brand out there. They they managed to land that. So it's their, at the moment, it's their game to lose, I think. What about the issue of it's a closed black box? We've no idea what goes on inside it versus open source. Some people are actually making the workings, the mechanisms of their platforms available for people to look at, tinker with and so on, which they say makes it more transparent. How's that likely to play out? Do you think that that might be the panacea here where people say to give consumer confidence, we will have an open source approach to this so that people can see how it works and they can be involved in its architecture and its evolution? The open source large language model world has a very, very powerful advocate in the form of Yann LeCun, who's a head of, I think, head of AI at Facebook Research. 
And he very, very passionately believes that the open models are the other way forward. But open is quite a complicated story with respect to large language models. Firstly, there's the training data, the stuff that goes into it, how you, the data that you use to actually build these models. And ideally, we would like to be able to see that data. For example, I would quite like to know the data that was used to train ChatGPT that relates to me. And there is some training data in there. I know that because it can answer questions about me. Then there's actually the code that was used with that training data to build the model. And ideally, we would like to be able to see that. But then finally, there's also what's called the runtime version of it, which is once you've trained the model, the version that you actually see. But also, there are all the processes. So for example, exactly what process did these companies use in order to decide what data went into the model? How did they screen that data? And also, we'd like to know how these things are tested. And even the advocates of open source very often aren't particularly keen on opening up all of those different elements. So it's quite a complicated story. And open doesn't necessarily mean as open as we might like. When we're speaking about training data, one of the things that I think a bit predictably actually has surfaced has been people maybe quite rightly saying it's obvious that you've used my copyright, my intellectual property to train your system. So what's likely to emerge as the solution there if we're feeding the entire World Wide Web into these models and therefore everyone's fr fruits of everyone's labours is being used to inform how they work and someone ultimately is making money out of it? I could say, well, I want a slice of that pie. With respect to books, books get pirated. And it was a source of great frustration to me that my textbook that I wrote, the very first link that you found when you searched to it was to a pirated version. The difficulty here is works like that seem to have been ingested either knowingly or unknowingly. And the jury's a little bit out on whether the, the extent to which it was knowingly or unknowingly done. And they are therefore sort of implicitly there. But current copyright law wasn't really designed to deal with issues like this. So has my book actually been copied? Well, not in a conventional sense. Is it a derivative work? Not in a conventional sense. And if a model is trained on the other side of the planet, but then how does copyright law work there? So these are difficult issues. The companies that develop these models claim that this is a fair use. But this is one of those situations where, um, yeah, I think we're going to see things played out in the courts and we will have to wait for the courts to, to make their rulings. The difficulty is courts don't move quickly and the technology is moving very, very, very quickly. Um, so uh, in the meantime, there's going to be a lot of people that are very, very anxious about this. You've just given the Christmas lectures this year on this very topic of artificial intelligence and its inexorable march forward. It's for a young audience. What did they make of it? We try to do as responsible a job as we can about them getting excited about the beneficial applications. So, for example, we saw some really wonderful examples of how AI is used in healthcare. But the final lecture, we address the issues and we and we touch on this, this issue, for example, in the section on arts, the issue of copyright is touched on there. But we raise the concerns that people have, concerns about misinformation. And, and we go to the really, really big ones, you know, questions about existential risk and so on. Um, we try and address those as well. But the lectures are designed to give 
this audience who are going to be the first generation in history that are going to enter adulthood in the age of AI. You know, we try to do as good a job as possible about educating them about what the technology is so they're not under any illusion that there's a mind on the other other side of the screen, uh, what the technology means and what the risks are as well as the potential beneficial applications. We are certainly living in exciting times, aren't we? That was Mike Waldridge. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. It's The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and we are looking at where science is likely to take us in 2024. Coming up, we've heard about AI in the year past, but how is AI going to revolutionise archaeology and anthropology in the year ahead? Before that, though, we're heading into space, because this year looks set to be very exciting in that realm too, with the Artemis II mission set to make a lunar flyby. I've been speaking to space scientist, author and former BBC editor David Whitehouse. Artemis II is a spectacular mission because for the first time in many decades we are actually going somewhere in space. They have to start actually, start stacking the rocket and preparing it as early as February next year. So um, it's a year-long campaign as part of proving the capsule so that the capsule is ready for when it's part of a landing mission a bit later on. Why is everyone so interested in the moon? Why does this matter? Is it pushing the technology is it the opportunities that people foresee there why are they doing this there are many reasons to go to the moon it's something that brings the youngsters into science and technology and that's important because we're living going to be living in a century of science and technology but of course there's the development of the technology there's the spending of the money which is spent on in companies in in firms in developing services And of course, there is going to the moon and understanding the moon, living in space as part of uh, living further in space from than living on the space station and preparing for a, a mission to Mars. Because it was interesting to note that in a recent press conference with the crew of Artemis II, NASA was prefacing every time it said about going to the moon as this is part of our mission to Mars. So this is part of a, a longer term plan. Who is funding this? And it's, what's the role for private companies? Because they are, to my mind, increasingly playing a bigger and bigger role in space activities, aren't they now? They are indeed. NASA is funding most of this, although there is part of it being funded by SpaceX with a lot of NASA money. But NASA has got to have cutbacks. It takes all year for people at NASA to work out the budget for the next year or the next two years. It's a full-time job for so many people. And they've worked it out for this year, it's 27.2 billion, and next year it's 27.7. But then along comes the Fiscal Responsibility Act, which says you've got to cut 10% off that. So they're going to have to lose a few billion from something that they had carefully crafted. And that might affect Artemis. The problem with this is, and this is going to be a big story this year, is that I understand the bureaucrats at NASA want to take that cutback from the science budget and not Artemis. And that's going to cause a big row among the scientists. This is going to be an exciting year for NASA with with Artemis, an exciting year for Elon Musk testing his spaceship and developing the way to land on the moon. But the money is very, very tight. 
Elon Musk has also got Ariane Space, the French first, I think, commercial space launch company. They're snapping at his heels because they are trying to recoup some of the satellite market because Musk has kind of cornered the market there at the moment. He certainly has. In the 90s and the noughties, Ariane Space, the European-backed launch company, had it all its own way. But along comes Elon Musk with his Falcon series of rockets and starts taking away the market. And it's interesting that I think the biggest customer for Ariane 6 over the next few years, when and if it does fly, is Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk's competitor, who's also wanting to put up over 3,000 small satellites to uh, improve global broadband access, global internet access. Now, Bezos couldn't really go to Elon Musk, uh, but he's gone to Ariane 6. And Ariane 6 is the new rocket that Ariane Space is building. It's supposed to be better performing, a lot cheaper, and able to fly a lot more missions. The problem is all with the money, because there are rumors that Ariane 6 is not going to be cheaper than Ariane 5. And if it doesn't get the launch rate that it should, then Ariane Space is going to be in problem. For instance, Ariane 5 cost about 150 million euros to launch. Ariane 6, they want to cut that in half to 75 million. The problem is you can buy a Falcon 9 launch from Elon Musk for just over 60 million. So they've really got to work harder than they plan at the moment. And the amazing thing is that Ariane Spass may go back to the European Space Agency and say, in order to keep Europe in the space satellite launching business, we need more money from you. Haven't Boeing been muscling in on the act a bit? Because they've got their Starliner. Many years ago, when NASA's space shuttle retired, they only had the Russians to take astronauts to and from the space station. And that was politically untenable. And it was also only one route to and from the space station. So it was also very hazardous as well. So they put out contracts to Elon Musk to develop his uh, Dragon capsule, and he put out contracts to Boeing to develop their Starliner. Now, Elon Musk's capsule works very well, and he's now a regular part of taking crew to and from the space station. The Starliner from Boeing has had many problems along the way. It looks more like the Apollo capsule of 50 years ago, but obviously it's much more technical, but it's more complicated. And uh, they've had various failures on the way. They've docked it with the space station automatically on one occasion. And um, in April, they're going to put people on board. There's going to be a crew of two, which are going to go and dock with the space station. And I think spend a couple of weeks there and then, and then come down again. So that's important because not only does it give the United States two routes to and from the space station, but it also develops a whole load of technology which could be used elsewhere in the space program. So it's important that Boeing, after many technical problems in developing this capsule and uh, failures and delays, I mean, this thing should have flown four or five years ago. Eventually, if they do get it to the space station with crew on board, that'll be a major hurdle. So this year, for the Americans, the human in space is vital. This is a crucial year for people traveling in space, not only with Artemis 2 and the development of Artemis 3, the landing on the moon, but also Boeing sending their Starliner into space. David Whitehouse there. Now, finally this week, we're going to have a look at what the field of archaeology might be turning up 
in 2024. I've been speaking to Emma Pomeroy from the University of Cambridge's Department of Archaeology. She's an expert on our Neanderthal relatives who lived alongside anatomically modern humans like us for more than half a million years before they finally disappeared about 40,000 years ago. She's been working at a remarkable site in northern Iraqi Kurdistan. This year's been busy as ever. We've been back in the field at Shamazar Cave, which is an important site, mainly known for, for Neanderthal behaviour and also Neanderthal remains that were discovered there. It's a very large cave, actually. I mean, sometimes when we say cave, you think it's going to be kind of small and somewhere you have to almost kind of crawl into. But actually, it's a very large, open-mouthed cave south facing so probably made quite nice living conditions it's in the foothills of the Barados mountains so it's not a high altitude but there's quite a interesting landscape in terms of the sort of steep hills and valleys large river nearby you get quite strong seasonal fluctuations really very hot in the summer lovely temperatures for for us at least in in sort of the 20s in the spring and in the autumn and then sometimes even snow in the winter and a mixed habitat really so over the summer you've got temperatures in the 40s so all the kind of grass and things like that become very dried out but certainly in the spring it's really remarkable and actually the sort of display of flowers in the spring is really really truly amazing it's obvious to see why it would have drawn people, but were there people there all year round given those circumstances? From the data we have, we're, we're not sure, but it's something that we're trying to sort of delve into more to understand. Were they there all year round? Are they using this in particular parts of the year and perhaps moving around the landscape to other places when climates are kind of less favourable? How would you get a handle on that sort of resolution? Because I presume, I'm not an archaeologist, you are, but I presume that you, you date the layers that you find the remains in and that tells you roughly when back in history they were there. But can you get a snapshot of, of the seasons, of when things might have been laid down at the same time? I mean, the dating methods that we can use to sell us how many tens of thousands of years ago Neanderthals are there are not so precise that we can kind of say, oh, it's exactly 452,000 years ago and they were there in February. We have to use different approaches. And one of those can be looking at the animal remains from the animals that they've been hunting. So if we were to find that the ibex that they're hunting are in a certain phase of the life cycle, so say if there's lots of young individuals, well, that might tell us that they're there at a time when there are young, so likely to be spring if they're seasonal breeders. We might be able to get some indications as well of, of perhaps looking at some of the plant remains because there's quite a, a fluctuation throughout the year. And obviously there's certain kind of flowering seasons and seeding seasons for different plants. And if we find a consistent pattern that, you know, the signals we're getting from the plants and animals are telling us, that can help us to really pin down how they're using the landscape and, and particularly Shandar Cave where we're working. Obviously, it's really important if there's anywhere that's a rich supply of archaeology because we can learn from it. But what are the key questions that, that really matter about this place? There's presumably some things in your mind where you're thinking this is a linchpin to understanding a lot more about this part of the world as it relates to this group of individuals when they were around? I mean, we have a huge number of sort of individual questions. Some of the big questions we're, we're really trying to get at 
is how are Neanderthals using the landscape? And then also trying to understand, so from, from my perspective, I'm a, a biological anthropologist. I, I lead the study of the skeletal remains. And I think there's very interesting questions there about how they dealt with their dead and whether that can tell us anything about the way they thought about death, if anything but also how they conceived of the landscape. Sometimes in more recent populations, we have special places in the landscape. I mean, one that we might relate to well is a cemetery. So can we say that about Neanderthals? Are they structuring the landscape in a way that has meaning to them? Perhaps, oh, this is a place for the dead. This is a place where we do a particular activity. And that in turn then helps us to build up a picture of how they thought But as I said, comes back to this idea of trying to understand their thinking about the landscape around them and the world around them. I think we've also got big questions about what happens to Neanderthals. And obviously, this is a a classic question, if you like. Neanderthals, as far as we generally understand it, went extinct about 40,000 years ago, or though some have argued that maybe their populations were kind of absorbed into the spreading modern human populations. If we accept that they go extinct around that time, what's their interaction like with modern humans? And this is a question we're hoping to address a bit more in the work that we're planning um, for 2024. So we're hoping to be back in the field and really focus more on this transition period. One of the things I love about archaeology paleoanthropology is that despite studying some of the oldest stuff on earth you get to use some of the newest most cutting-edge scientific techniques inevitably word of the year 2023 artificial intelligence or ai is anyone applying that to these sorts of questions looking for the relationships between time points movements geographies and so on to try to to get answers to some of the sorts of questions that you've been putting in front of us Absolutely. And I mean, people have been using AI to try and answer these kind of questions for a number of years now, actually. But over the last year, I think the technology and the computing power has got to the point where this is becoming something that we can use much more. So this is something that I think is really fascinating. We can take data that we have, such as 3D data, taken using structured light. We can use aerial photographs, for example. And so have images of sort of large geographic areas and then actually use AI to predict where sites are like to be or also to spot kind of structures that might actually be something archaeological. And this technology is really quite astounding. So one of the the applications that I think is particularly amazing is that they can use this technology in the Amazon. So even where there's huge tree cover over the land, we can kind of strip that away and actually use the technology to spot where sites are, or we can predict where we think they should be based on availability of water, what the landscape's like, the pattern we know of other sites from that time period, so where people are tending to build or to occupy the landscape, and then use that to help guide our further studies. And that's just one example of where AI is kind of making a really big contribution in the field. Cambridge University's Emma Pomeroy. Well, that's it for this week. But just before we go, if you are looking to give us a gift this holiday season, then you can always donate to the programme and show us your support. Go to our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash donate. We really appreciate it. 
Next time, our Titans of Science series continues with Debbie Prentice, the psychologist and also newly appointed Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge University. Tune in to hear what she has to say. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.